0: The message of this is not you're the worst and you need to work incredibly hard and be ultra ascetic uh, and do absolutely all the things in order to almost earn God's love. That's, that's a, a twisted, uh, demonic, basically, way of approaching these things.
1: okay welcome everyone to the orthodox christian podcast and today i have the pleasure of speaking with dr daniel Opperwall. and for everyone watching or listening there is a prior video where we explore dr Opperwall's spiritual autobiography how he encountered the orthodox church and eventually joined it but today we are doing more of a topical video looking at virtue and vice and asceticism and what it means to apply these things when we actually live in the world rather than in a monastic community. So um, for everyone watching or listening, Dr. Aperol, why don't you take a second to just uh, give us a lay of the land and what we're going to be talking about today?
0: Well, yeah, I was, we were just uh, sort of uh, chatting there, uh, prepping for, for the session. Um, uh, what would what be interesting to explore, I think, will be the question of what virtue and vice are to begin with, uh, what asceticism is to begin with in the Christian life, um what these terms mean in the in the Orthodox tradition, among church fathers and scripture, wherever we see these kinds of ideas um, because they're they're really they're significant, they're quite important and in a certain way, they're very intuitive when we talk about virtue and vice and then in other ways they're a little bit a little bit slippery. Um, and then uh, yeah, I think it might be helpful to explore a little bit how we, um apply these things or how how we try to live virtuous lives basically and avoid vice uh in li- uh, um, as lay people living in the world which i assume most most listeners here are maybe we have a few monastic listeners um but uh in general i think most of us are lay people living in the world um, and there's always a lot of there's a challenge uh, when we're reading um, some of this literature especially the ascetical literature that talks about certain strategies for cultivating virtue in ourselves how to actually live that out, how to um, bring that into lay life, uh, family life, married life, these sorts of things. Um, and then, yeah, if we've got some time, we could explore a little bit um, of uh, St. John Cassian's uh, got a lovely list of eight vices, um, sort of anti-virtues uh, that I find really helpful for preparing for a confession, gives us a little more granularity in exploring what, what he means when he's talking about, or what, what any of these thinkers mean when they're talking about vices and virtues and so forth.
1: Mm. And it reminds me, I think it was Charlie Munger and a completely different uh, note, but he said something along the lines of sometimes it's hard to think about things in positive terms, in terms of where you want to go. And sometimes it's helpful to frame it actually in negative terms. So vices can be helpful in that sense, where we're framing it negatively to show the opposite of what we want to achieve. So to start, asceticism is a pretty, um, it's it's kind of like an in-house word, you you might not know what it means. So Mm -hmm. what does asceticism mean? Asceticism, yeah. Uh, uh, what the simplest definition
0: that would pop to my mind is basically deni- bodily denial, um, putting one's body through um, some level. It doesn't need to be, you know, super harsh or anything, but some level of denial or discomfort um, on purpose for a, a perceived, for hoped for spiritual gain. That's the basic essence of what asceticism uh, is. Historically speaking, among Christians um, and among a lot of religious communities, because asceticism, you find it all over, all over human human beings, everywhere in the world, all through history, who are seeking some kind of spiritual enlightenment or knowledge or or you know deep relationship with God. Um, asceticism has been a tool since the dawn of time for helping people to achieve that. Um, so you'll see. Uh, all kinds of examples, ranging from you know very sort of harsh, perhaps even almost shocking, problematic examples of asceticism in the Christian tradition. Um, you know, people self-flagellating and uh, walking on uh, shoes with nails, and these sorts of things. That would be a very extreme types of asceticism, uh, all the way down to what we almost don't even think of as asceticism um, necessarily, like in our in our regular Orthodox lives, which would just be you know keeping the fasting calendar, right. Um, uh, and just abstaining from meat and cheese for example during lent that's a you know a very mild doable pretty you know pretty tame version of asceticism but it is it's a little bit ascetic right because you're denying the body something that you might want to have you might like to eat uh, and the hope is to get a spiritual gain out of it uh, and that's basically what asceticism is. Um, I think in the Orthodox tradition, asceticism ex- is expected at a certain level to be part of everybody's life, including lay people. And that's why we do have the fasting calendar that's really quite mild. Um, lay people often do completely abstain from all food, maybe one or two days of the year. Perhaps you do that on uh, a Great Friday. Um, perhaps you do that on Clean Monday. Um and maybe the beheading of St. John, this sort of thing. So maybe a couple times a year where we truly, truly fast, like don't eat anything for an extended period of time. Monks and nuns usually have quite a bit more asceticism involved in their lives, um, a lot more abstinence, a lot more fasting in the proper sense of not eating any food. Um, And they might engage in other practices um, like, you know, sleeping on the floor or something like that. Um, There's also a sense in the Orthodox tradition that asceticism can go too far and we need to be careful with it. Um, Like I said, we do see those examples where people are self-flagellating or something like that. Those are usually pushed back against even um, even within monastic communities, as you know, maybe too much. Um, and then we have borderline things. You hear, read stories of great saints who like wore chains around themselves all the time. You know, thirty pounds of chains, and wore hair shirts and these sorts of things. Well, you know, is this in or is this out? That might be sort of a judgment call depending on the community and that that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, so that's the full range. We're we're all expected to engage in some level of asceticism, but uh, in the tradition, it's kind of keyed to where we are. So lay people, you know, yeah, just abstain from meat and cheese during Lent and a couple of days, maybe not to eat. Um, and uh, that's kind of what we do, and keep a prayer rule, and uh, and and uh, so forth. So, mm.
1: you know, And <clears throat> it, it's really striking to me in scripture that you have these moments where people are pressed to, with something kind of weighty, and the way they approach that is through prayer and fasting. And mm-hmm. so you've got like Esther doing that, or Daniel doing that, or other figures throughout the Old Testament. And it seems like part of the reason they do this isn't just because God is requiring it of them in some sort of Um, arbitrary way. But it seems that this is a method to clear their spiritual sight so that they can perceive God clearly or more clearly or open themselves up to the possibility of perceiving God because God is in the scriptures and in Orthodox tradition, the one who is the most hidden. He has to reveal himself to us. And we often, it seems, get distracted By the worldly things not that the world is bad because the world is a good creation of god but we misorder our priorities and we put the worldly things above the heavenly things and so it seems to me that with asceticism it's a very concrete way in our lives through prayer and fasting and tithing to order the world properly and the hope is that this will overflow into the rest of our lives so that we'll be able to um, be open to god it's not like a guarantee that if you do these things you're automatically just going to see god and perceive god but i think it at least puts you in the situation so maybe you can think of it in terms of god is like the rain coming down from heaven and if you're in the house you're never going to get rained on so this is like just seeing the world Mm -hmm. improperly but if you put yourself outside it's not a guarantee. It might not rain, but it, at least if it does rain, you're in the right spot. And so it seems like asceticism is a way to present ourselves before God, to put ourselves, to position ourselves rightly. Um, and that those negative examples of asceticism in terms of self-flagellation, mm-hmm. it seems like these are practices that would see the world as evil, as bad. And yeah, that they, is they why can't. they're misaligned.
0: Yeah, they can I mean, certainly, if you go far enough to say that the world is evil and bad, then you're you're outside of the Christian understanding at that point. And there are there you are know, there are many people, humans throughout history, Platonist pagans or whatever, who might say, yeah, the world is just plain evil. Being in a body is a bad thing. We don't want to be in a body at all. Uh, we're just waiting it out until we die. Um, that is absolutely not uh, Christians, especially ancient Christians, were very very consciously rejected. They they knew that they were rejecting that, and it's actually a, quite a bold claim, historically speaking, on the part of the Christian Church um, to say that the body is good and being in creation is good. It it it's bolder than we than we often realize in our modern world to come out and say that. Um, but you know that that little uh, aside, uh, notwithstanding. It, um, yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. It's it's about. The world is good, creation is good, but it can become really distracting. And if you think of that really simple, a simple example like eating meat and cheese, um, when we fast from these things or abstain from these things during Lent, we precisely only abstain from things that are good. Uh, If you're abstaining from something that's fundamentally bad, that's not fasting, that's not abstinence. So, you know, if you are uh, a cigarette smoker and you're smoking cigarettes and you quit during Lent, that's great, but you don't. Pull out a pack of cigarettes at Posca, because you want that to be out of your life permanently, because it's just bad for you, right? Um, so that's not really fasting. That's not really that same kind of abstinence. The the true fast is from the things we fast from the things that on Posca we're gonna bring out. And, and that's our our celebration, right? The bottle of wine comes down, we, we you know, we put the lamb on the spit, we bring out all the cheese, we celebrate. These are because these are good things. These are things we want to return to, they're part of our lives, they give us joy. Uh, and they, they help us to celebrate. And so abstaining from those things for a time is not is precisely not a declaration that they're bad. Truly, truly bad things for us, we just quit. But these things that we abstain for a time, because we know, although they're good, we can get too sucked into them. We can get too trapped by them. Um, and uh, yeah, and so we don't, we're fallen creatures and that'll always be a temptation. So to just give some pushback, right? Give a pushback against ourselves and remember all of this is, basically temporary. Like this world is passing away and we're living at the end of the day, we're living for the next world, not for the pleasures of this world. The ascetical fathers talk a lot about, um, what we're conscious of mentally conscious of. And when we focus all of our mental energy on the world around us, whether that is things like our food and the next great meal we're going to have, or whether it's stuff like sex or whether it's money, um, we're focusing on everything, but, but God. Uh, and what we're meant to do is really flip that completely over and, and basically focus exclusively on God. That's, that's the sort of eschatological vision we have for ourselves. That's never going to completely happen in, in our world, even for monks and nuns and certainly not for lay people. You know, I have to deal with my bank account. I just, I do like, it's, I have to take care of my family. That's part of it. Um, but the things that I can do to remind myself that that bank account isn't the point, right? You know, and making that money isn't the point. those little things i can do those little ascetical things uh, exactly like you said it puts me in the space to to connect to encounter god and to and to hear him listen and, and and experience his presence
1: totally totally so um along those lines it's probably helpful to talk a little bit about virtues and vices what these things are so um again probably better if you if you lead the conversation here what are virtues let's start with those yeah, virtues. So
0: this concept of virtue goes back to way before Christians. I mean, I think all human beings, all human cultures, every everyone everywhere has some kind of concept of virtues. And virtues are basically characteristics within us that are good, that we want to see. Um, you know, to, it sounds a little flippant to put it this way, but like virtues are the things that make a good person, right? Like who's, who's a good person? Uh, a person who's got the virtues. Across different cultures, times, and places, you might find some variance in what's considered virtuous. Um, and even in our own worlds, uh, I think. Well, I think one of the really big things that's happening in our culture right now is there's a growing disagreement. There's there's a growing divergence about what people think of as virtuous, and it's it's creating a lot of pressure on our society. Um, but anyway, that's a bit of an aside. Um, but uh, there's also a lot of convergence. There's a lot of virtues that are seem like pretty universal. That you know, everyone seems to think that honesty is overall a good thing um you know as a virtuous characteristic to be a generally honest person uh you know trustworthiness is a, is a good thing um if you go back to you know ancient uh ancient europe you know in ancient East, eastern europe um you see a lot of lists of virtues start to appear especially around the time of aristotle these lists of like these are the key virtues. These are what makes you a good person. And uh, I don't have Aristotle's list off the top of my head, but it involves things like courage and wit is one of his, I believe. Um, uh, you know, intelligence and these sorts of things. And Christians, um, early Christians, sort of took for granted, um, for sort of obvious reasons, that you know, virtue is is a real and important thing in human life. Uh, and start to kind of like develop and massage and, and work with some of these, these early lists of virtues or ideas of virtues um, in the light of Christ to, to sort of discover the you know what it would be to be a, a good Christian at the end of the day. Um, and so thinking about lists of virtues just helps us kind of delineate that, right? At the end of the day, being Christ-like is the virtue, the fundamental virtue uh, from which all of them flow. And any other sort of delineation of virtue is a way of you know, thinking in a, in a more granular way about being like Christ, right? Um, vices are kind of the opposite of that. Vices are the things that rot away at us. They're the things that um, make us spiritually, psychologically, and often even physically sick, um, less and less healthy people. Um, usually when pe- we use the word vice, or often when we use the word vice, people think of um, people think of like very like deliberate, intentional, often maybe sexual or drug related like behaviors, you know, gambling, drinking too much, um, and those those are vicious behaviors, right? They are uh, that vice is involved with all that. Uh, when I say vice, I mean it in a little bit of a different way. Um, it sort of overlaps a bit with the concept of sin as well, but it's, it, it's the, the characteristics, it's like the anti-virtues, it's the characteristics that we allow uh, to, or we cultivate, or we allow to metastasize within ourselves, um, that make us less Christ-like, less, less Christ-like, and um, more divorced from God, um, and uh, yeah, there's sort of lists of these as well, uh, that are out there in the ancient world, that we can maybe talk about a little later, but um, but it's similar to asceticism, and I think it's crystal clear that all Christians are called to uh, try to be virtuous, to a life of, of virtue, um, and it's a, an eternal, constant, ongoing, uh, mysterious uh, process uh, to try to cultivate virtue within ourselves. Um, you know, for example, a virtue like courage. You know, trying to cultivate Christian courage. Well, what does that mean in and out, day in and day out? What does that mean in various situations? Um, what, what does it mean to be courageous uh, in the face of whatever you're facing uh, today? Uh, Is always this open, complex, difficult question. And we return again and again to the figure of Christ as the fundamental source of the answer um, but, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's an eternal lifelong process. We go on and on, uh, seeking to cultivate that more and more, but hopefully we get ourselves spiraling in the right direction, you know, becoming, growing a little bit more in virtue with each and every day and less advice, but it's, it's tricky
1: yes yes yeah there are virtuous cycles in life and there are vicious cycles that go down and so it seems like another way we can speak about virtues is uh these are difficult practices and i should preface by saying whenever i think about virtue advice i always think about proverbs and the way of Mm. wisdom and the way of folly and so uh what i'm saying probably maps onto that or i hope it does but virtues the way i think about them are they're difficult practices they're things that are hard to actually do that lead to habits and so there is sometimes a really good thing about something becoming subconscious in ourselves, because when it's just operating at the conscious level, that means it's more effortful, and it's at a more fragile state in our psychology. And so if we're able to actually bring that down into the subconscious level, that's much more effective, generally. And so I think that and it's harder to root out. So if we're able to do that with uh, virtues by consistently practicing them, it's like bringing it closer to our heart, which is preferable because these are things that integrate people um, both in the sense of being um, internally cohesive, that not being at war with yourself, but also allow a community to cohere and that they lead to life in the end because uh, God is the one in which all things cohere. So you can think of Christ as actually the center point of all history. All things are gathered into Christ. And so as you're moving in, uh, in a direction that's gathering things, uh, this is a generally a direction of virtue um there's sort of the antithesis of that which is vice which is instead of a a difficult practice it's actually an alluring practice so it seems very tasty and appetizing and there seems to be something sweet about it um and yet if we engage in it it does become a habit that disintegrates ourselves um so it creates these inner conflicts within us as well as the community it doesn't allow the community to cohere and uh eventually it does Lead to death because you would have, well, it's going away from life. It's from the one to the many. And this is like what the devil is because he is the one that tears apart. He is the adversary. That's what Satan means in Hebrew. But Diabolos is the one who takes what is united and divides yeah. it. It's the opposite of a symbol, opposite of bringing things together.
0: Yeah. 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 No, I, th- I think that's very, it's very well put and a good, a good helpful way to think about it. Um, yeah, you know, we we were chatting just before we started about that issue of alluringness or sort of pleasure of the vices. Uh, I, our culture definitely seems to have a, a, an overarching attitude that the you know vices are kind of pleasurable and nice, and we're, we're not really supposed to do them, but but they're actually really great and kind <laughs> of fun. Um, and that's um, it's it's interesting. It's something. There's a kind of truth there, I think. Um, but one of the things I find really remarkable about, you know, virtue and vice in in life is that if that's ever true, it's usually pretty briefly true. Um, and I think if you look at some of the aesthetic fathers and John Cassian, who I work with the most, um, a really, a really helpful aspect of using this term vice is that, um, the thing it's most like is addiction, right? And, um, you know to take like we we have huge addiction problems right now across canada across north america opioid crisis and all that sort of thing but to take a bit of a similar one i mean anyone who's ever smoked i used to smoke cigarettes for a while um and uh, you know they're yeah they're, they're guys they're pleasurable at first but before too long you realize that you i guess you're getting a certain kind of pleasure out of the thing but overall you don't you actually don't you don't feel good you smell bad, you know, <laughs> they taste awful. Um, I have a little more space in, in my mind for cigars that at least taste good or, or pipes, but <laughs> cigarettes are just like, and you get to this point where you're like, what am I, what am I doing? Like this actually overall isn't, it isn't pleasurable. I like the word you used alluring. Like there's a draw in, a, in the case of a nicotine addiction. It's a very powerful draw um, to, to that substance. Right. But it, you don't, it's, you don't actually like it. It's like, oh, this is actually in fact making me feel kind of sick. And, uh, you know, I can't breathe as well. And, uh, there's all these negatives. I don't really like it, but it's very, very, very difficult to stop, even though I don't enjoy it and kind of maybe never did really enjoy it overall. Uh, and, and virtue it, it's, it's, it's like the opposite. It's those things that when we do them, we feel good and we feel healthy and they actually are pleasurable but there's for some reason very often this like block like we don't want to and like a good simple example of that would be exercise like um you know you do do some basic exercise in your life certainly in my experience like i feel good it makes me feel good right like uh, i'm not in hardcore working out kind of person but yeah some some light moderate exercise 20-30 minutes in a day like yeah you feel more energy feel a more balanced um, it's pleasurable, but for some reason, when it comes time to like, you know, maybe get up and and you know, go for a short run or something, uh, you know, everything in my mind is like, nah, I don't have time for that today. And and so what, and what do I do instead? Well, maybe I'm sitting there, you know, flipping on my phone, which I'm not even enjoying. And so like, it's, to me, it's absolutely fascinating and it seems to be universal for, among humans. And it's one of the reasons that the, the, a lot of the ascetic father's, talk about this in terms of like the demonic forces and angelic forces is because it's so, it's kind of almost baffling. And St. Paul says, you know, I I do the the bad thing I don't want to do. And I don't do the good thing that I want to do. Like you're sitting there, you're almost up outside of yourself and thinking I would feel better and enjoy it more. And it I will actually have more pleasure if I go and exercise and just for the next 30 minutes, what I'm actually doing is sitting on my butt, Scrolling through crap on my phone that I'm not even enjoying, right? I'm not even actually getting something out of this, and we all have that experience. And it's it's like it's kind of mind-boggling. Why does this happen to us? And so these fathers often look to like kind of basically outside forces that are pulling us in one direction or another. So there's yeah, there's this strong allure often towards vice, and for some reason virtue is often very very hard. But in terms of pleasure and pain, it's very often the vicious life. Especially over time, is painful. It's you it, know it makes us sick. It makes us ill, just like those cigarettes do. Um, and the virtuous life, when you cultivate it carefully, build those habits, like you were talking about. This is the kind of life where you start to realize, no, I I feel good. I'm more happy. It it gives us. It's its own blessing, really. But for some reason, it's very hard.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've often thought with work that 50% of the battle is in your head. And if you can overcome the demon inside yourself, then you can get on with the job. And you realize that, oh, it wasn't so bad. I wasn't needing to be so apprehensive about this. And then it's the reverse with the vices where it seems very alluring. It's very easy to kind of slide into it. There's no resistance at first. And then you wind up hating yourself. And so that's that disintegration that takes place, as well as the disintegration in the community. Because if you're taking the example of work versus say play like premature play and it's not really even played properly speaking but if you like slack off work well now you don't have enough money and now the family's not going to be happy with you and you're not happy with yourself and so the whole thing kind of crumbles apart whereas if you go to work it's kind of hard at first but then it allows things to integrate and cohere and you're on the virtuous cycle so uh Let's move from that, unless you have anything else to say on virtue and vice well, i was from I was going to note
0: in response to that that, yes, the community aspect is also is very, very important. If you read an author like John Cassian, but also um, many others, but especially for Cassian, it's hugely important because he yeah, he's constantly observing this that that if you think of vice as like a disease or like addiction it's it's not one that just stays internally isolated to me. It will metastasize, it will work its way out into whatever community i'm in in his case he's looking mostly at communities of monks and nuns but it could be your family it could be your church community it could just yeah it'd be your workplace whatever it is and again this is very intuitive we all experience this It, it happens both for concrete reasons like what you're talking about like there's a kind of snowball effect where i'm not doing the right thing and then you know the chickens come home to roost and we all pay the cost of that but it also happens and i think we all know this it also happens in this kind of like psychological way you know if, if i come home you know angry and uh, like this like the mood in my house is going to take a nosedive fast uh right and uh, especially if i start now i start taking that out on everybody else and like I, maybe with someone at work that may be mad but um but i'm very short with the kids And like, even though they had nothing to do with what I'm mad about, this happens to all of us. And and you quickly see how that will cycle. And now, you know, my wife and kids are in a bad mood. So maybe they start taking it out at kids at school. And all of a sudden my, you know, falling into a vicious pattern has worked its way into my wife, it's worked its way into my kids. Now it's over at the local school. Uh, It's it's, it's a lot like a disease or a virus or something that spreads person to person. so the addiction model is really helpful um, in, in a lot of ways, but there's also this disease model that we can think of. And, and it, yeah, it's hugely, hugely important to remember that it's not just us. The whole body of humanity really um, suffers when we let ourselves slip into vicious patterns.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And same with uh, by our, um, virtue, that it's like this light that sort of emanates yeah. out and allows others to be enlightened and the light is coming from God fundamentally, but we can be mirrors of that light to others, um, or we can be the opposite of that. And it strikes me that there's so many writings in the early church, both in the scriptures themselves, but also with the early church communities, with the apostolic fathers, where the emphasis is really on keeping the community together and allowing the community to cohere. And so you could look at someone like St. Paul writing to the Galatians or to the Romans and he's trying to keep the Jews and the Gentiles together as one. And the same is true. And even in like, Corinthians and stuff. Um, Corinthians, so like a, yeah. a lot of the writings are about just being together as a community. And I think that that can be a nice mental shortcut. It's not a perfect mental shortcut, because like the, the community can go bad at times in history. And so you have the opposite of that with say, the prophets in the Old Testament, where they're kind of like the lone voice against the community. But I think in general, that's the uh, rule that's the exception that proves the rule that's probably Mm -hmm. how you can think of it especially within the church Um, and I think it's probably a helpful mental shortcut to say is this something like is this action that I'm participating in leading to the cohesion of the community or is it tearing it apart because when you think about something like um, like gossip it is alluring it can be and you can even have this like christian veil over it or like veneer of well i'm caring for this person by speaking about them or inquiring and asking this other person what they think about this person but it's like is this something at the end of the day that's building the community up and leading it to a stronger place or is it undermining it and causing the walls to to slowly crumble down do you think that that's a fair way like uh, as a mental shortcut to say like is this building up the community as a uh, connection with virtue. Yeah,
0: I, I think that's very helpful. And looking at 1 Corinthians is a great example of Paul trying to do that. You, you bring up the prophets. I think the one other factor is, is it centering the community on Christ? You can build a community on all kinds of awful things. Right? Uh, and it, you, it doesn't take, it take you 10 seconds on the internet to go find yourself a community that's centered on something you know, really, really bad for everyone in the community and for all of us. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so bringing the community together in coherence and then having that coherence on Christ. I mean, I think that what the prophets represent is those situations where maybe the community is quite, is still coherent, uh, but has, has centered itself on the wrong thing. And the prophet comes along and says, Hey, Hey, hold on. We all need to, to shift to Christ. And that can happen in very, in little ways, in small ways, um in our own communities in our own parishes you know maybe we've gotten a little too focused on like the basketball team if you have a, a parish basketball team maybe that's kind of become our main center point maybe somebody needs to come along maybe the the priest or the bishop needs to have a little bit of a prophetic voice to say hey i'm glad we're all coherent here but that coherence needs to go from the basketball team to the lord right and that's always a perennial perennial struggle so true true, true virtue is yes that coherence uh, that coherence makes us a body then what are we at the body of we need to be the body of Christ um and so things that lead us to be a body and to be the body of Christ are going to be virtuous things gossip is a great example because like there's never a bright line it's very hard to know like what is vicious gossip versus what is like sin- like sincerely just you know asking about somebody if if I ask uh you know a friend uh, about another friend who's sick or you know has cancer or something like well you know how how are they doing um do they need any support like is there anything i can can we bring a meal over something like that uh probably to my thinking i don't i wouldn't think we're gossiping right like i'm sincerely trying to find ways to help i think that's okay i don't think you can never ever talk about someone um, but like, you know, when it slips into, uh, you know, okay. Well, an even a better example, maybe a couple's gotten a divorce. Okay. So maybe I ask about that in a very sincere way. Like, Hey, how is it going? And like, and can I help? Can I support? Like, what can I do? And maybe it starts to turn, maybe gets to even start there, but then it starts to turn, oh, and then did you hear what he did? What she said? And now all of a sudden we're like, mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a great example to think about those kinds of signposts that you're that you're talking to, like kinds of checks in our mind to think, wait, okay, is wh- where that's what I'm doing vectoring towards? Is it vectoring towards disintegration? Is it vectoring away from Christ, or is it vectoring towards integration and vectoring toward Christ? Um, can be, yeah, I think it's it's a great way to think about it uh, because yeah, you're not going to get bright lines. There's not going to be some rule that you never talk about anyone else, like well, that would be absurd. Uh, but yeah. we do it to vector in a certain
1: way, right? Totally, totally. And sometimes gossip is one of those ones that is hard to define. The way I've come to define it at present is uh, if you're honest with yourself and you would say this thing to the person directly, right? Yep. then it's usually okay to speak okay. to someone mm-hmm. else. But you have to be honest with yourself because we can be under lots of delusions of, well, of course I would say this to the person directly. And that's <laughs> not the case. It's just an excuse. Yep. Yep. So there's that. Um, and... Yeah, in terms of the community cohering and like the prophets not aligning with that, I think one other thing I just want to throw in there and hear your feedback on it is, again, we can be delusional. And so it's probably helpful, even if we feel like we're probably it's not good to feel like you're the prophetic voice. Probably that's not good. Probably but usually not. Yeah, if you feel like you're pushing against the community and it's within a Christian context, probably if you run some things by other people. And if they also think, well, yeah, no, I think that the community is kind of going off in in this direction, then it's probably helpful to move forward because we're not transparent to ourselves. And it's easy to uh, build ourselves up. It depends on someone's personality, of course, but it's easy Mm -hmm. to be sort of the martyr and be like, no, I'm gonna show them. And maybe it's coming from arrogance rather than true humility.
0: Yeah, it could be. It's it's a huge temptation. Virtue and vice are so close together, right? And exactly as you say, it's really more about the vector. yeah, how do you know if you're in a time? It's very easy to go think. Well, this community isn't doing what I would do. Therefore, like it's time for me to just like whatever, crack some skulls verbally. Um, and yeah, I mean, it might be. <laughs> that's the whole problem with it. It's not like that's impossible, but uh, pro. It probably isn't. I mean, I would. I think you're right. Like the, my first instinct would be probably it's not. Like probably start small. But I mean, it, th- there are some small ways that you can bring certain kind of prophetic voice to yourself. I mean, begin with yourself, first of all, right? Like, you know, am I focused on Christ? Like, am I sufficiently, you know, pointing in the right direction? And then I th- I think it's one of the reasons we preserve like the Old Testament prophets, for example, and those those texts is how very, very unusual it is to, <laughs> to need to go to that level where you're like preaching fire and brimstone to the people of God or whatever. Um, far more often like if you're in a parish church or something the prophetic voice is merely a, is is a, is a much subtler and quieter thing is to just say ah you know i was i'm so glad to hear the basketball team won but um you know what can i say what can i do to remind us that uh, hey that's good but um but let's you know what we're here for is is christ it usually is a much gentler and much more you know irenic, uh thing that we're that we're called to do by much because yeah we can't we can't lose the cohesion of the community in the pursuit of that that prophetic sort of thing anyway it's a bit of uh, Mm. an aside but it is yeah yeah
1: yeah but when in doubt talk to a
0: good spiritual guide and and yeah when in doubt just ignore it if you think (laughs) that you're being called to preach fire and rimstone at your parish first thing to do ignore that (laughs)
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it's helpful to walk through these things mentally in the sense of like, what are the warning signs or what are the things that we can align ourselves with? So along those lines, uh, let's speak a little bit about desert spirituality in Orthodoxy, because Orthodox Christianity arguably has, well, it definitely has a lot to say about spirituality. And a lot of that comes from this desert tradition or monastic tradition and arguably it has the most in terms of the different practices of Christianity, like it's really preserved a lot of that in its ethos. And let's maybe describe what that is and how we can engage with that as people that don't live in the exact same context.
0: Yeah, so it's, it's very, um, it's a big deal, I think, for a lot of Orthodox Christians, especially very often like newer converts, um although not just not just newer converts uh but one thing we have in the orthodox church that that make that is at the heart of what makes orthodox christianity kind of different and kind of unique among christians is precisely that is a a huge value still placed on asceticism and a huge value still placed on monasticism for men and women, monks and nuns. Um, There absolutely are still monks and nuns among the Roman Catholic church. uh, So that's not like that's vanished completely in in the Catholic church. It's a bit like there's a different kind of timbre to it oftentimes. And the Catholic church has different styles and approaches and there are, you know, different orders. For example, we don't really have orders in the Orthodox church, Um, but you know, not to belabor that kind of comparison point. Uh, I, I do think you're right. I think it's actually fair to say without being mean to Catholics that the Orthodox Church is the, it has preserved the most interest and has valued higher than really any other Christian community, that ascetical way of life, that monastic way of life. And so one of the things that that does is it means that a lot of what we read, a lot of the saints that we look at and commemorate uh, day in and day out as Orthodox Christians are going to be coming from there. They're, they are monks and nuns. All of our bishops, for example, are, you know, officially speaking monks and usually have come from some kind of monastic community. Um, So all of our top leaders are monastics. Um, And so many saints, look at the calendar of saints. You're going to see, you know, monk, nun, monk, nun, nun, bishop, maybe every couple of weeks, you know, an actual lay person will, will make their way onto your calendar. But that's rare, uh, it's hard to find and so we're kind of inundated with these examples of this of this particular way of life and it's very very highly valued on the whole I personally think that that's great I think it really helps to call us to account and it, it's one of the things that has helped the Orthodox church continue taking Christianity very very seriously this is much much more than you know mental assent to an idea or you know just I believe in Jesus kind of thing. Uh, that's great. And that's an essential starting point, right? Uh, but that pres- the preservation of that asceticism and that kind of desert approach that, uh, to uh, to Christianity is key in giving us the, the life that we we lead. The Where do we go from that belief? We, so we've, we've got faith, but like, what do I do today? Um, and it gives us a rigor. It, it pushes on us in ways that are really helpful and really key uh, and really important. The other side of it, though, is it can create a lot of risks for us lay people. When you look at that calendar and you see one monk after the next and one nun after the next, it starts to be uh, tempting to think, well, all the like real Christians, all the holy people are living that way. And here here am I married with three kids, like just trying to avoid meat and cheese for a good chunk of the year and like keep my prayer rule. And that's like and go to church on Sunday. Right. Like that's and that's a lot because I got all these cats to herd to get to make that happen. And I got to work a job and I got to do this and that. So um, it's very easy to get down on ourselves. It's very easy to despair and think we're just kind of second class, second rate Christians. Um, And that's not at all what this tradition is meant to. this, yeah, that's not at all where we're, we're supposed to be going. That's not at all how we should be thinking of ourselves. Um, uh, what, In my view, at the end of the day, what it all comes down to is that, the, is that the virtues that that these ascetics are seeking are the same virtues that we need to seek. The vices that they're seeking to avoid are the same vices that we're seeking to avoid. Our target ultimately is Jesus Christ, the embodiment of all virtue, of all wisdom, of all truth just like it is for monks and nuns. But the context is is very different. And so we have to think of our, how we're gonna live our own lives in pursuit of that virtue. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so that's what the uh, Layman of the Desert uh, book is about, um, which you can find somewhere just to give a shameless plug. Um, hope you like it. And, uh, just trying to think through some of those sorts of questions about like, well, what do I, what do I really do in a in a monastic, in the lay life to try to seek that same virtue that a monastic does? A, like a simple example would be, you know, money. Like, um, how how do monks and nuns, at least officially speaking, deal with the temptation of owning property, of owning money, having stuff? They don't, right? They officially own nothing. Uh, okay, sort of problem-solved in a way, right? Like, how do I deal with the fact that? You know, that nice new car is making me feel kind of proud of myself and better than other people. And that's not a good direction to be going in. Uh, just don't have a car. Those Don't do it. Um, okay, fine. I mean, if I live in a monastery, maybe that's okay. I, I can't do that. I you know have to have some kind of vehicle. Uh, so what am I going to do instead to seek the same detachment from my stuff while owning it? Because if I don't own stuff, my, my kids don't eat my parish doesn't function. And here's the thing, even the monks and nuns need me. They need somebody on the outside to be dealing with the world, be dealing with money so that I can donate it to them so that they cannot, right? So the church has to have people like me who are going to interact with that stuff. Um, and But how do we do it with seeking detachment from it, for example, among many other things? And sex would be a very similar sort of thing. How is a married person going to seek a kind of chastity, even though we don't just abstain completely, like a monk or a nun would. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's those sorts of things, and it's, it takes a lot of discernment. It takes a lot of—it's um, a long process, and it's a lifelong process to sort of think through how to seek those virtues uh, in that different context. But What we definitely, definitely must never do is become despairing and, and think of ourselves as second class, second rate. Um, and to me, again, it's really helpful to think, well, what if everybody did become a monk or a nun? It would—it wouldn't work monasteries need a person like me on the outside dealing with the world so that i can cut you know cut the donation check so that they can just focus on praying for me and themselves and doing the the very important work that they're also doing we're a body of christ and as a body we need different members as saint paul says um so yeah
1: and correct me if i'm wrong but historically speaking like there are definitely uh, roots in <clears throat> what Christ is doing in terms of monasticism, like Absolutely. he himself wasn't married. He set aside wealth, etc., And so he is very monastic. There's also John the Baptist or um, like St. Paul and other of the apostles that who, who set aside many worldly things in pursuit of the gospel. And rather than being fruitful and multiplying with a wife, they were uh, multiplying and being fruitful in terms of making converts. I think you can see some sort of continuity there, but um and their treasure wasn't earthly it was heavenly etc etc so it's like uh again not that these things are evil per se it's just that they're it's almost like they're reserving that energy in themselves for god and so rather than being married to a person they're being married to god as it were um it's metaphorical so we've got to be careful with how we go down that route but it's there's some sort of connection there and um i think it might be helpful to talk a little bit about um how we can concretely engage with this because i wanted to mention like historically these are people that in egypt i think that's kind of one of the prime uh founts of monasticism that people would leave uh all the earthly pleasures and this came at a time when maybe martyrdom was quieting down a little bit in christianity it was becoming more of the state religion a little more acceptable and there would be groups of people that would still want to follow Christ in a very radical way. And so they would depart from the world and go live out in the wilderness. And so this was a sort of frontier environment and people wouldn't have children there, just be adults. And so it was organized very differently. And we in the world typically will have children at some point and be married. and be engaged with commerce to sustain ourselves like you were mentioning. So, um what are some helpful ways that we can we can bridge the gap here? Um
0: yeah, I mean I think uh, yeah, that's I mean historically speaking that's that's right. asceticism and types of what we would kind of think of as monasticism go back before before Christ himself, right? So you have John you a lot of Jewish ascetic monastic type groups um in in Jesus's context he's he's clearly doing something along those lines, like he's living in the world, but yeah, it appears not to be married. This uh, tradition says he's not. And, um, you know, not focusing on yeah commerce. He's relying on others. And, and St. Paul is doing the same. And St. John, so you get, you get some great, great scriptural examples. Um, yeah, the first few centuries of Christian history, you have martyrdom. Like you said, that's a pretty, that's an asceticism being imposed upon us by the world, right? Like, uh, and, and we've seen this, in our lifetimes, even right, like in in the Soviet Union, it's still today in a place like China where you know Orthodox Christianity anyway is effectively it's illegal, and you could get in some serious trouble. When there's that kind of pressure on you, um, you know it, it, it there's a refining fire to that. Uh, and as the church becomes more comfortable historically, you lose a bit of that refining fire, and then a lot of people are, you know, hoping to replace it. Uh, that's a, a, a typical narrative of where sort of modern monasticism comes from, uh, and not a bad one. I think another really key source of it is just scripture. Uh, one of the key, key, key things that is in the early, you third, know, fourth century monastic communities as they get started is that passage where Jesus says, sell all that you own, take up your cross and come follow me. And there was this big group of people who felt like that what that that passage was basically kind of speaking to them and was directed at them. I don't think it's directed at absolutely all people. It wouldn't work if it were. Um, but yeah, these people and, and and you see it again and again in that early literature is like quoting that passage and it's these people who like kind of you get almost the I get the vision or the in my imagination of people like reading this and just like putting down the book and being like. I got I got to literally do that. And they go sell it all. And then out they go into what we call the desert, which is more wilderness is maybe even a better term. Um, and then, you know, this is happening in 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 droves. Uh, and so one of the things, one of the legacies they gave us is eventually formal monastic communities would start evolving and, get, and developing. And one of their legacies is the continued existence of communities that are built on that basic model called the the synobium, which is basically you first have these people living individually, and then eventually they start to gather together into kind of groups, communities, usually divided by um, gender to avoid sexual temptation for people by and large. Um, And that's what coalesces into modern monasticism. So one of the legacies is that we can go visit monasteries today. Um, and one of the key things uh, that basically, really, any monastery in the Orthodox tradition, um, one of their key key missions, one of the key things they're there for, is to welcome visitors, lay people, who are going to come and kind of drink from that monastic well for a little while, not to live there necessarily, or, or with no plan to live there, but just come for a weekend, come for an afternoon, come for a day. Um, the uh, Day or two days before my wife and I got married, we went we went up to a monastery for the day, and we just just to like clear heads. You know, we're so busy with this wedding, and there's family drama and all the things that happen with all weddings. We're like, we just wanted to just take. We didn't even spend the night. Just take the afternoon, take the day, clear our heads a little, and just focus on what this is really about, which is which is God, which is Jesus Christ, and get ourselves at least kind of a little more in that headspace before we go have our wedding. You know, two days later. Uh, which I think is great advice, by the way. If if anyone's think, uh, on the path to get married, uh, drop a little day at the monastery in there, maybe just before the the wedding. It'd be it'll be good for you. You won't regret it. Um, so yeah, so one of the key legacies of that is to create these spaces that lay people can partake in. Uh, at least from time to time, and then welcoming, of course, new monks and nuns who do choose that lifestyle uh, in the end. Another key legacy and the thing that is probably the most impactful is all the literature. Like right? We have all these writings. People read the Sayings of the Desert Fathers, one of my favorite collections. This is a collection of little passages, little teachings, little stories, vignettes um, from those early days in the third and fourth century in, in northern Egypt um, that uh, have been preserved for all these you know, millennia. Uh, for us to read. Uh, They're very dense. It's really rich. You know, you read one paragraph of it, and you have to sort of stop and and just meditate on it for the rest of the day sometimes. Uh, But these little teachings, these little insights. Um, The author I work with the most is St. John Cassian, who spent a lot of time in the deserts of northern Egypt and then founded some monasteries in France and tried to take... Those same teachings, and he, he compiles them in his uh, famous conferences, and then some of these ideas into what's called his institutes, Cassian's Institutes, uh, to help preserve those in the life of these monastic uh, communities. And so, from there, um, you know the the fruit when it when it's going well blooms within all of our lives. Um, the trick is that these things are can be very demanding, and if we push ourselves too far, it's very easy to fall into despair. Um, and, and that's, that's the difficulty. So in terms of bridging the gap to finally kind of answer your question, (laughs) respond to your question at all, bridging the gap, I think means connecting with and partaking of the literature and the actual monasteries themselves, uh, because they can offer a lot of nourishment, but doing that with, with great care and doing that in the context of, um, a, a spiritual father, a spiritual mother, or just a confessor or just a parish priest, as well as a community that can help you with it. Especially if you're new in the Orthodox Church, you might pick some of this stuff up, and it it can easily be misunderstood. It can easily take us in, in, in the wrong direction. It can easily lead us to despair. But if we do it as a community, if you do it with someone who's there to remind you that God loves you at the end of the day, more than anything, you have to remember as you get into this, God loves you. The message of this is not you're the worst and you need to work incredibly hard and be ultra ascetic uh, and do absolutely all the things in order to almost earn God's love. That's, that's a, a twisted, uh, demonic, basically, way of approaching these things. And these these things are instead an invitation, an invitation to a more beautiful life. Um, they're an invitation to a life closer closer to God that is, at the end of the day, its own reward. Um, it's a life of joy, It's a life of being aware of God's love. So as you go through keeping that fully in mind, God loves you, has died for you, has saved you already, and that love is not absolutely not negotiable. Even if you think you don't deserve it, God doesn't care what you think. He loves you anyway. Even if you think you don't deserve to be forgiven, God doesn't care. He forgives you. You're his property, and he's going to love you and forgive you, whether you like it or not. And if you can approach these kinds of things, this literature, some of these practices with that mentality really firmly in mind then they bear incredible fruit it's a beautiful beautiful thing um and if we lose that mentality they can get destructive they can actually be bad for us. and the best way to hold on that mentality is to connect yourself with people who will remind you when they see you falling away from it no hey guess what guess what man god loves you deal with it right
1: uh, within your community and with within your your spiritual guidance. Hmm. Well, I really like what you said about it being an embodied practice that's connected with the actual parish that you're part of and deferring to the priest's help and evaluation of what parts to apply and to do this again because we aren't uh transparent to ourselves we can be misguided and delusional so it's helpful to uh, throw a bit of a larger net out there and say well parish priest what do you think as well as some friends hopefully that we have in the orthodox church that have maybe known us for some years that can evaluate these things from an outside perspective because that can be so helpful um, so one thing i wanted to run by you is it seems like in terms of maturity like uh, the way of the desert is a way to maturity. And this is one way to think about virtues as well, um, is becoming who we are meant to be, becoming fully human by acquiring these virtues over time. And that seems like one trajectory, and then it seems the life in the world is one trajectory. And it feels like in either case, that what's necessary is, maybe we might wanna phrase it differently than this, but one term that comes to mind is the crucifixion of the will, because yeah. there is a certain uh, burning or fire that you're engulfed in. There's lots of positive things too. But when you have children, for instance, you are required to do things that you would not normally do. And this is what it means to crucify your will. And it is for the love of the other person. And this is what love is. It is willing the good of the other person. It is not primarily an emotion; it is primarily an action. And if you act in a loving way consistently enough, the emotions will follow. So you've got to put the um, the horse in front of the cart. That's how. I think it works properly. So yeah. it seems like within married life, it is like a purifying fire. Um, there's lots of like wonderful, joyous things. So I don't want to scare off people that maybe aren't married. But <laughs> there are lots of things that it shows you. Like I, for instance, never knew how selfish I was until I had children, and that that was a great way to realize, wow, I need to grow in a lot of ways. There's lots of things that it brings out of me where they're not listening and following directions. And it's like, don't you know this would be better for you to do it this way? But they're not obedient, and then it's. It's like a reflection on me that I'm not the leader that I should be because they're responding in this way. And I can grow a lot more. And it shows my impatience. And I never would have considered myself an impatient person um, or someone that wrestles as much with anger before having children and them like exposing that. It's not them, it's me. And so I think yeah. that this is the same with a community of monastics where It is the crucifixion of someone's will. And so it's different than someone just going out on their own as a hermit. And maybe there are certain people that are gifted by God's grace and are able to do that. But by and large, it seems like this is a setting in which someone has to do things they would not normally do. And the community is there to hold them to it. And at a certain level of maturity, maybe they do go off on their own. That seems to be more the normal pattern, where they're in a community at first, and sometimes then they go off on their own after Not they've rarely. achieved a certain yeah, a certain level of maturity. But it seems that in either case, one of the fundamental things that leads to maturity is the will being crucified and going through that that fire, as it were. Do you think that that's a, a fair way to characterize oh, it? Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. In
0: today, in the modern Orthodox practice. Permits, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, I guess you could just go do whatever you want. But if you want to do it the right way, the way a bishop and, a, and a, um, an abbot would approve of, you start in the community and only and its very, very, very few, very few might occasionally sometimes after a while in the community be given a blessing to go live a hermits or an eremitic or hermit life um, totally out on their own but it's it's very rare the vast majority of monks and nuns stay in the community their whole lives uh, a monk on Athos um, made a very pithy <laughs> but important observation to me once when i was struggling with some of these things and whether i should do this or that should i get married i, I was i was asking him basically that question he said first of all he said yeah get married Number one, <laughs> it was like he was he didn't even think about it. So like, oh, OK, well, that was interesting. And second, he, he said that, um, you know, this here, this monastery, this is just a different way of making a family. That's all it is. We're just a family. Um, you know, they're a family that in, in the case of, a, of an athenite monastery, a family of, you know, men, adult men who have come together and chosen to form a family with with one another, with just adult men, right? Um, And and he's like, and you're going to go get married and you're going to have a family by having children, right? And But it's this, I mean, and this was a monk, I'm on Athos, mind you, right? Like telling me that like, it's not different. It's the same thing because exactly what you're talking about, family life that community life and John Cassian emphasizes this a lot as well. It, yeah it holds up that mirror to us it shows us what we're what we're really like um, and it gives us a space to be obedient my spiritual father used to say yeah obedience in a monastery means you do what the abbot says or whatever and you, you're given a, a prayer rule and you're given a job and you just go you do it and you say yeah you know okay I'm gonna go do it in a in a family with a mom and dad and some children um, you don't have that there's nobody in that role to just say you do this you do that Um so obedience works differently, and he said obedience in that context is just doing the things that need to be done and simply doing them, uh, following the clock. He said, you know, the, the clock is a key tool of obedience in family life, because when it's time to pray, when it's time for, you know, to read um, first hour or Vespers or whatever as a family or whatever you've, you're set up to do, you know, six o'clock comes around, we're supposed to read Vespers quickly together, um, let's just say. Uh then six o'clock comes around. Am I going to do it or not? Am I going to obey it or not? Right? And uh, so doing that in a family context, it is. There's a little bit of. It's a little different because we don't have an abbot, but this is the same idea. It's not about me. It's about us as a family. I have to, like you said, crucify the will. Um, and in a marriage, it's the same way. You crucify your will to each other. Both parties are are fully obedient. This is why marriage is very tricky and very mysterious if we're truly, totally obedient to each other, it's like none of, neither of us is guiding. And ultimately it'll be Christ, the Holy spirit, ideally that guides us along. As soon as one of us pulls back from that, you know, mutual, uh, martyrdom, that mutual martyrdom of both our wills, then things start to get more complicated. And we, you know, we start to argue in this sort of thing. And, And inevitably we do, we're fallen people. Like it'll always be some of that. Um, but it's, it's a kind of, it's a profound, mysterious image. Um, but yeah, so they, like, these are just examples of some monks who've told me in the past, uh, yeah, family life is really, there is no sharp distinction. In fact, there's almost no distinction at all other than the, the particular nature of the family. But monastic life and family life are, are the same fundamentally uh, when they're pro- both properly understood. That's, that's at least what I've been taught.
1: Mm, mm. Well, and it brings to mind for me the reality that in our time, there are fewer families having children, and albeit many of those may not be in the Orthodox Church, but it's sort of a spirit that's out there where you will hear people not wanting to have kids because of the inconvenience, mm-hmm. and they want to retain, quote unquote, who they are. But I think the, and you know, you've got to caveat this and add a footnote that there are people that would want to have children but aren't able. But yeah, i'm not really talking true. about that right now yeah. and uh, but it seems to me for those that are able that are christian that are tempted to like put it off f- until their career is established which is a real temptation yeah um it's first of all there's never a good time to have kids but also you'll never become who you're meant to be it yeah. seems like that's kind of the thing like if you avoid it perpetually it's like sure you can retain your will but the, the point of it being crucified is that you'll become christ and so it seems like this is a necessary step that it's painful but um as we we're talking about virtues it's a difficult thing that integrates like you mm-hmm. have now a family unit and it and it leads to life do you think that that's an okay way to think about it
0: well yeah for for those who are uh you know on the path to have children like for for those for whom that's how life is going to unfold and that's how it's going to be a key part of how you build that family, the family within which to crucify your will. Then, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's always a temptation to drag your heels a little bit, but yeah, I would generally. I mean, okay, so like every situation is different, right? Like, so maybe, maybe you really are like maybe the finances are really are just so bad right now, or whatever. And you can talk to spiritual guides, people in your community. Um, for those who, uh, what what I would say is absolutely essential is to put yourself within a family. I, humans have to do that. Mm-hmm. And so for many of us who get married and do the kind of traditional get married, have kids, um, that's going to be key to how we put ourselves within a family. Some people will try to do that and then won't be able to, um, but they still need to be within a family. Uh, And then there's the monks and nuns who create a family through choice, you know, with uh, just with other adults. However, we're doing it. so a couple is already a family. It's a very small family, but you've already begun. So if you're married and, and kids don't end up happening, um, then you already have that there. And then for all of us in the world, we can, we have, we have to have a parish community as well as Orthodox Christians. And that's essential to being in a family as well. So yeah, I mean, so if you get married and and you're unable to have kids um, or whatever, uh, that's, that doesn't mean you're toast,
1: right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, It's all yeah.
0: over um because there are all kinds of other ways within our tradition that we we form those families within which to do this work that we're talking about of crucifying the will um and yet for many many of us uh it's that involves ha- having actual physical biological children for some people it might involve adopting children for others you know there'd be no children Then there's monks and nuns um i think it's wonderful that the orthodox church has always since ancient times understood that there are many ways to form these these this family community um, and so wherever you find yourselves, but yeah, like resisting that. I mean, if, if you're not having kids, cause you don't really want to be part of the kind of family that uh, is going to require you to make sacrifices is going to require you to crucify your will. That's not a very good reason. Um, if, cause we, as, or, as Orthodox Christians, we have to look for that. We have to seek that. Um, and, and having kids can be an easy, wonderful or well, easy. It's not easy at all. It's <laughs> simple, I guess, a way of putting ourselves in that situation. Um, and, and for those that it doesn't happen, then there's these other these other pathways to it. But but yeah, the world around us, the outside world very much does not. It seems like the trend is I I don't want to be in that situation. I want to precisely preserve my will. I want to do whatever I want. I want to hop on a, a, a plane and go to Jamaica when I feel like it. I want to be a social media influencer, whatever. I want it to be all about me. I don't want to crucify the will. If that's what's going on, that's something we have to fight against. It's something we have to resist. And we have to put ourselves in those family community spaces in whatever pathway to get there uh, to, to try to crush that. We're definitely all called to do that, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it's it, a nice um, example of how departing from that way does lead to death both in the sense of people don't become who are they they're truly meant to be but also yep. uh statistically there aren't enough children in the world for everyone listening there aren't enough kids in the world people yep. are just living longer and that's why there are more people on the planet but that's we right. don't have replacement rate, right, which is not a good yep. thing so you can see that it really does lead to actual decrease in population and mm-hmm. the inability to sustain things like pensions and just like from a very worldly perspective like it math doesn't work. So got to have kids. Anyway, um, I want to ask your thoughts about one other thing and then move to summarization and then sort Mm -hmm. of wrap it up. But Mm -hmm. um, it's easy. We've kind of mentioned or you've alluded to ways that this can go off the rails. But do you have other examples of what not to do when we're reading these um, ascetic texts or trying to engage with this tradition that's being handed down? Yeah, I mean,
0: don't don't try to ape it. Don't try to be a monk or nun if you're not one. Um, Do not. This is one of the key ones that I see very often. Uh, Lay people who first encounter this stuff, they'll start to read about obedience. Uh, and you sort of just and I, I alluded to it or mentioned it before you know sort of doing whatever the abbot said um that in, in that in that form um and, and this is something that was taught to me very explicitly by my own spiritual father that in that form is really basically not part of a lay life. And it can be a real problem to try to emulate that in some way. First of all, it's impossible. You don't live in a monastery. You cannot call your spiritual father or your spiritual mother um, every single time you decide what to have for dinner. You cannot call them up and be like, or your parish priest, God, please do not call your parish priest every night to say, Father, is it blessed for us to order pizza tonight? Right? Like, or should I, you know, Roast the chicken that's in the fridge, right? Like, uh, no, you can't do that. It's truly, literally impossible. You have to make all kinds of decisions out on your own that you can't consult with a spiritual guide about in advance. That's part of lay life. You're gonna live. You're gonna live that way. Period. Um, the other thing that can be risky is people thinking that they have to have some kind of spiritual guide to whom they are fully obedient. Uh, and the risk there is that if you just willy-nilly put yourself under whoever. Um, it can it can be pretty ugly. You can be you can be at, um, at risk of of very real spiritual abuse, uh, and it's a big it's a big problem. That kind of relationship. What I often say to people is um, Father James, who's my spiritual father, who's who's no longer with us in this world. Um, I think there were three times ever in a in a, in a decade over a decade long relationship I had with him that he just he told I asked him to tell me what to do. And he, and he did, he actually gave me a straight answer. He would usually resist that. But even if I asked, he would, be mm, you have to think about it. But uh, there were, I think three times that I can remember where he said, do this or don't do this. Um, and I, um, f- to hear that from him, I immediately, like I would never think to not do that. But the reason is not because there's some rule that tells me I must only ever right It's not like I'm imposing a rule on myself. The reason is that he was someone who uh knew me so well and who I trusted so deeply because I knew I knew he loved me and um if he and I also knew he was very, very judicious about saying do this like it's not something like he just did willy-nilly like there was a lot of discernment. Uh, one of the times I'm thinking of he actually Said, give me three days. I'm going to need to pray and meditate about this. And then I'll, and then we'll talk again and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I think or I'll tell you what to do, basically. Um, so, knowing that, that, that this is not just somebody willy nilly telling me whatever he thinks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and you know, when you're in that kind of relationship, it's a lot it's like cycle marriage, right? Like, you don't just go married. Maybe it's a good thing to be married, right? So, let's just say, let's say you want to be married, you want to be in that kind of relationship. You don't just walk out the door and marry the first woman you meet or man you meet. Um that's a bad plan. <laughs> uh, and and a relationship of obedience with a spiritual guide is like that. it's it's a it, that's a very high bar, and it's one that most of most Orthodox Christians, lay Orthodox Christians will probably never have in their life, and that's okay. because again, we talked earlier about pathways to family. We have pathways to spiritual guidance as well that vary that that um, there's a lot of ways to do this. Most Orthodox Christians, most of the time, simply have a parish priest. They go to confession with him. I think you should listen to your parish priest. I think you should take them seriously, Uh, but you are by and large, most of the time, not in a relationship of monastic obedience with that person. And it can be very dangerous for both of you to try to impose that. so listen to the advice, definitely do confession, 100%. You need to have a confessor. That's non-negotiable. But your confession might just be um, your parish priest. Um, and yeah, so like it, just to wrap that kind of point up, after my spiritual father did die, I was a bit a bit of a crossroads. Who am I going to go to confession with now? I didn't know what to do, and I didn't know how to respond. And I prayed about it for, for many, many weeks and was really stuck. Um, our own parish priest it, was my former student. And so I always used to say, Oh, I can't do confession with you, Father. You're my student. It's like, it's too awkward. It's too weird. And, but finally, through a lot of prayer, I just, this sort of, I don't know, answer, this idea came to me that felt like, I don't know, it felt like it was a message from above, so to speak, uh, which was your spiritual father is dead. You will never replace him. You must not try to replace him. You now, for the rest of your life, are like almost every other Orthodox Christian. You're just gonna go to confession with your parish priest. Your parish priest is Father Yuri. Get over yourself, get over the awkwardness, and go to confession with Father Yuri. That's what you're gonna do. But whatever you do, don't try to have another spiritual father again. That that's over for you now. Now you're you know a regular layperson. Uh so anyway, I hope that illustrates a little bit that like we can often get. Sucked in, especially new people, can get sucked into thinking, "Oh, I need this spiritual father. I need this great thing that I'm reading about, and I need this obedience." And it could happen, and you'll know it if it does. But if it doesn't, don't despair. The church has pathways. We've been here before. Most people simply go to confession with their parish priest, listen to that advice, talk to other people in the church, and the church community as a whole will be your guide. Will be the body of Christ uh, for you along with yeah the scriptures of course and all these other things we do to gain guidance wisdom insight God will provide it for you um, and and don't don't feel like you're second rate and don't push too hard to you know uh, to find this relationship of obedience t- that most of us don't actually end up having even ever in our lives and I won't have for the vast majority of my life
1: yes yes and um, we might be defining terms slightly differently here but I think one helpful way to go at it is that, Um, Sometimes there is a temptation, like you said, to go external from the parish to some monastic community and find a quote unquote very spiritual person there that you're going to defer to. And in general, the way that it works is that the parish priest is your spiritual father. This is the person who's being set over you by Mm -hmm. God and that... The times and places that we live are not willy nilly, but they are a part of God's providence for us yeah. so that we can receive grace. And so we can trust that the events that are unfolding in front of us are from God. And sometimes there may be a particular figure outside of our local community that we have mm-hmm. a special affinity with, and glory to God for that. But in general, it seems like the person that's placed in front of us at our parish, who's the leader there, is the person that we're going to confess to, and there'll be our spiritual guide. Is that a fair way to put it. I think generally, and I,
0: I think you make a really nice point there
1: too, which is to, I, I I don't
0: really recommend forcing it. You know, I talk about my spiritual father. That was something that just, I fell ass backwards into. And um it like, they just, there was a monastery, basically a very small monastery in the city here where we live in Hamilton for for a time, a Western Rite monastery, actually. And we just, you know, visited one day, like went to Vespers, just curious and no, like, they seemed nice. And they were, I actually think the first couple times we went, uh, Father James wasn't even there. I believe he was traveling, as I recall. And uh, they kept being like, "Oh, you got to come back and eventually meet Father James." So we came back, and we just—it was just nice. And then we started kind of coming for vespers because we liked—we liked it, and it was very meditative and peaceful. And we just—we liked the place, and we got to know them a bit, and um, and then, uh, you know, had no intention. I just still did confession with my parish priest and, you know, no intention of anything, but then, you know, a lot of kind of stuff happened. I don't even need to go into, but you know, different, it was a very hard time eventually in my life that rose up. And I just remember thinking at some point I was like, I just, I want to, I'm just going to go, I want to talk to father James, just, let's just see what he thinks about it. And that's kind of where it began. And then it, you know, a little while after that, I, 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 I said to him, I think maybe I'd prefer to, Start coming to confession with you, as he was a priest. um, Would that be okay? Is that blessed? And he he said, Yeah, I think that you know that's okay. I would bless that. And then I but then I talked to my parish priest about it and said, I'm thinking about maybe going to confession with this other priest and said, and he said, Yeah, okay. That I think that's a good idea in your case. Um, Why don't you do that and bless me to do that? So then I switched my confessor, and then it was only after quite a while that I sort of realized I think. I think I have a spiritual father. Um, and so it was not an intentional thing. And I, I don't recommend it being an intentional thing, by and large. Uh, visiting monasteries is great. And if it sort of blooms that way, and you start to feel like, wow, this this person and I have this kind of connection where I think it, there's, a, there's a sort of special bond here, where their advice is just like where it just really works. <laughs> Uh, where confession with this person really works, then then it'll bloom, it'll prosper. And also your parish priest will, be, by and large, be very happy to bless something like that if, if it's coming from the right place, right? Um, and they should be fully aware because they need to know you're going to confession too. Like they have pastoral responsibilities to you. So they've got to know, well, you're confessing somewhere else and that you're doing it regularly and that kind of thing. So yeah, be in touch with your community about that, bounce it off people like yeah, I'm thinking of maybe doing confession with this monk priest monk or uh, or even with like an abbess or something, and then maybe your parish priest blesses you, yeah, just talk to the priest about it, talk to people around you about it, and it'll maybe unfold or it won't you just go to confession with your parish priest and you know God is with you and and that that's okay <laughs> it's yeah very, very normal <laughs> in fact, that's the usual way,
1: yeah, totally, totally, so i'm gonna do um, some summarization and then if you have a final thought that you want to send us off with. But uh, today we've been talking about asceticism and virtues and vices. And so just to give a little bit of a list here with asceticism, it's a way to uh, practice in miniature how we should see the world and it's putting things in the proper order. Virtues are things that are difficult at first, they're practices, but they become habits over time and they integrate us and they lead to life. They orient us correctly in this world, whereas uh, vices are The opposite of that they're very alluring but they lead to disintegration and eventually death both um, internal disintegration but also as a community and a a sort of mental shortcut that we can use with this is does it lead to the cohesion of the community in general that's probably a a virtue if it doesn't if it strays from that and deteriorates the community in certain ways then it's probably a vice and then with the spirituality that we have in the orthodox tradition a lot of it is very much influenced by this wilderness experience of people going out from the world and there's a lot that we can learn from that however it is essentially another family that's being created there and so if we have a family of some kind that both of these paths are ways that we can be purified and the things that are not healthy can be burned off of us as we crucify our will which essentially means doing things that we don't want to do for the sake of others, because we love them and love is primarily in action. So um, whether that's having kids or it's going out and being part of a monastic community, these are both viable paths, but the important thing is that we have some sort of relationship like that so that we can become more uh, of who we are meant to be in Christ and the people that are around us are there for a reason. And so I think that there's a temptation to sometimes have a a fantasy and go off to find this great spiritual figure. But who is around us is usually the people that God has given us for our own salvation and uh, perfection by God's grace. So um, is there anything else that you'd like to add or a final thought? I I think that's
0: a great summary. I mean, I guess my final thought would just build on that, which is basically if you're interested in asceticism and this kind of literature and, and the monastic Um, tradition in the Orthodox Church, locate yourself within your family, the family that that you're going to be in, which is, for many of us, just our literal family, and also involves a parish uh, community as well. Locate yourself and your family. If you're if you're kind of still questioning, if you're not sure, like maybe you are called to a monastic family, that's a bit of a different thing. Work with the people around you to figure it out. But find your locate yourself. This is the family in which I'm going to seek Christ. This family in which I'm going to crucify my will, as you were saying. And then um, avail yourself of some of the blessings, uh, if if they're helpful to you, of this literature and of these these com- monastic communities as well, uh, with a clear cognizance of of where you're carrying this out which is different probably from from what they're doing and if we can do that uh it tends to lead to hope um rigor with hope uh the reminder of god's love and and it can do do wonderful beautiful things for us to to read this stuff and learn from from these traditions when we when we feel solidly rooted in knowing who we are i'm a family man who who takes a bit from these traditions and visits the monastery. And that's a good thing. Uh, but don't forget <laughs> what you are. Um, and if you do happen to be a monk or nun, then then same advice, in fact. Um, but uh, but yeah, so if you are like me, you're a layman, a family man, partake, drink a little from the well and keep your feet on the ground where you are in your in your family. And that's where you're going to seek your salvation.
1: Mm. Well, thank you again, uh, Dr. Offerwall. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Always a lot of fun. Yeah, you too, Max. Hey guys, thanks for checking out that episode of the Orthodox Christian podcast. If you have a question about Orthodox Christianity, there is a link to a Google form in the description where you can ask your question. Also, if you want to check out that book by Dr. Operwall, it's called A Layman in the Desert. There's a link in the video description to that as well. And it explores the question of how to apply monastic spirituality to a life that is not monastic i.e. one that is in the world where you have a family and so on and so forth. So I would definitely recommend checking that out. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it if you shared it with one friend or family member. And in the meantime, I hope that you have a peaceful week. Take care.